Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Uh, hello, Kareem Khalifa. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Carrie. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation about understanding, explanation, and scientific knowledge. Before we get to the actual topic of the book and the and the contents of the book, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself. Um, you know how you came to philosophy and how you got interested in the topics that you work in, and, and how you came to write the book. Oh, sure thing. So. Uh... My background is primarily, well, my, my undergraduate background started in mathematics, and in particular in applied mathematics. And I think from a very early uh, acquaintance, like I remember having this experience when I first learned um, uh, Newtonian mechanics, I sort of encountered what uh, Wigner would call the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. I, I felt that really acutely. I thought to myself, here are these well-regimented scribbles uh, that somehow represent things like forces and so on and so forth. Uh, and I thought that that was really kind of puzzling and amazing on some level. Um, and I, I felt that even more acutely in my undergraduate training, where I started off with a, a special focus on applied mathematics and the social sciences, where um, the, the effectiveness is actually not so clear. Um, the unreasonableness becomes maybe more salient. Uh, and so as I started uh, sort of kicking the tires on this with, uh, with people who are either social scientists or mathematicians, they told me, you know, these are really philosophical questions and that should be where you turn. And so that's, uh, that's sort of how I got interested in, in philosophy, uh, very roughly. Uh, and I guess, uh, uh, how I got interested in particular in, in topics of understanding and explanation, it was sort of, uh, fortuitous. I, uh, I got really interested in explanation, uh, just in, in the course of my graduate studies and in particular, how it differs across different sciences, uh, and was also very interested, particularly in sort of epistemological questions, uh, such as uh, topics such as inference to the best explanation and things like that. And just as I was completing my my dissertation, uh, this literature on understanding started popping up. And I thought to myself, well, a lot of the stuff that I looked at looks like it, it has answers to this stuff just under a, uh, a different name. Uh, and that, that was really how I, uh, how I started. And so one of the first publications I had on this was called uh, Inaugurating Understanding a Repackaging Explanation, which was basically saying like, hey, we've done all this already. Uh, and uh, to some extent, that's been a, a guiding theme in my work on understanding is that we, we have a, a pretty good epistemology of explanation that ends up solving a lot of the, the current sort of uh, problems that we have uh, with respect to understanding. Uh, good. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, understanding and explanation. I mean, that's kind of, I, that's the basic debate in this neck of the woods is, you know, is understanding something different from explanation or is it, uh, is it a particular form of explanation? Could you kind of, you know, talk us, talk to us about the general, um, the general lay of the land in terms of what, uh, what the main debate or debates are about. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. Great question. So uh, I have sort of my own potted history, which I, I tend to tell with this. Uh, I don't know that everyone would agree with this, but it's it's hopefully not too far from how a lot of people working in the field would work, which is basically there's a much longer history 
uh, of explicitly philosophizing about explanation. I think uh, for, for we philosophers of science, Carl Hempel, Hempel is sort of the, uh, the, the, the forefather of that particular branch of philosophy of science, uh, where essentially what you're trying to do is come up with uh, a suitable philosophical analysis of scientific explanation. And of course, there's been many variations of that since then. And you'll find a few remarks in Hempel where he either says things that are actually quite critical of understanding because of his uh, his background as, as a broadly illogical positivist, thinking that it was overly psychological. But the more glowing things he says about understanding just basically show that to understand something is to have uh, an explanation of it. And um, that ends up being sort of a, a, a theme you see throughout uh, much of the 20th century uh, philosophical literature on explanation is that uh, people say things either that uh, understanding is basically having an explanation or knowing an explanation, but they don't spend a lot of time talking about what that having or that knowing is. And I think what you see starting in the 21st century, uh, which is really when I sort of jumped into a lot of this stuff, is people saying like, well, there's actually a lot more to the having than knowing as it's uh, traditionally been understood, for instance, by epistemologists. Um, and even the the sort of throwaway re- remarks that that philosophers of science have sort of uh, made about this, it looks like there's there's more going on there. And of course, we, we've moved a long way from the Hempelian sort of view where anything remotely psychological is uh, is not philosophical. So that's sort of the springboard for things. And what you see is people sort of start with what I like to call the received view of understanding as knowledge of an explanation as as sort of the um, the foil I think b- by which to sort of start a lot of these new 21st century conversations about understanding. And so uh, you see lots of people challenging the idea that understanding requires explanation. You see other people saying, well, um, it doesn't have some of the traditional features of knowledge. For instance, um, it looks like sometimes false models provide understanding. Uh, Some people, particularly more in the epistemological literature, focus on things like whether uh, understanding is compatible with what's called epistemic luck. What basically is it... um, uh, is it undermined by by Gettier kinds of problems and things like that? And so these have been a lot of the questions that have popped up uh, in the context of these discussions. And that's essentially what my book is about is saying, look, if you sort of polish off that received view and add a few bells and whistles, you can solve a lot of these problems. It doesn't require a deep departure um, from the received view. Okay. So the received view is basically that understanding is is somehow a species of knowledge right um that's the the basic specifically explanatory knowledge yes okay um uh well you know i was gonna ask next about your particular you know the all the bells and whistles right your your what you call your eks explanation knowledge science model but um maybe um do you have an example a few good examples i mean when i think of understanding you know coming from philosophy of mind i i think immediately of of searle in the chinese room you know screaming that the guy in the room has no understanding of chinese right and and that that to me is like a paradigm case of of the use of the word understanding in a philosophical context uh, where, you know, it kind of really, gra- you know, that, I mean, obviously the Chinese room example has had, you know, tremendous influence, um, but exactly pinning down what, you know, what, on, what is it that, what is it that he's missing? What is, you know, what is, what is it that Cyril wants or that we have, sort of have this intuition about what he doesn't have that, you know, if you said, well, he doesn't have an explanation that, that doesn't seem to be quite capturing what, Searle is, you know, sort of vaguely intuiting towards, I don't know, you know, so can you maybe say a word about 
what we're talking about when we're talking about understanding. Yeah. So, so I think your, your comment um, uh, really sort of underscores a very important point, which is that understanding is said in many ways. Uh, so um, there's understanding a language, which is obviously very different than understanding uh, a phenomenon. Uh, uh, as you find in science, for instance, there's understanding in mathematics, which presumably has some differences because it's broadly non-empirical, um, which would be different than science. And so I focus primarily on understanding empirical phenomena. Uh, that's, that's really the, 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 the target of the, of the book, uh, is trying to make sense of that. And I, I'm, I don't know what I would think. I, it's been years since I've even looked at the Chinese room, so I'm just going to uh, embarrass myself if I say anything about it. But uh, I take it at least partly what's going on there is something like uh, understanding as concept possession or something along those lines. Uh, which would presumably be distinct from understanding a phenomenon. It might be necessary, but not sufficient. For instance, maybe you need to have a concept of the phenomenon, uh, but that goes over and above actually figuring out, you know, what's making this phenomenon do what it does, right? Um, and that, that I think it is, is really the, um, uh, what, what, what uh, my, my interlocutors uh, who are also working on understanding uh, are frequently focused on, particularly in the philosophy of science. Uh, and it's certainly what I take myself to be focused on. So I don't know that I would have much to say about about Searle, uh, particularly because I haven't read read that that article in a very long time. So I think, like I said, I would mostly just embarrass myself. Right. Um, no, that's. You, yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. He just says he doesn't understand. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. But you asked for a paradigmatic case. Um, so uh, you know, you think of things like understanding um, why, for instance. Uh, People get peptic ulcers, which is something I talk about in, in one of the chapters of my book. And you know what, what's been discovered is that there's a bacterial cause of ulcers. That basically uh, it's because of a bacteria called H. pylori. Uh, and so understanding in that case is first and foremost just identifying the correct cause of peptic ulcers. But over and above that, it involves what I would call uh, scientific explanatory evaluation, or what I call seeing for short. Um, and so that basically involves um, what I like to think of as, as sort of a um, a pretty schematic uh, description of the, the scientific method, um, where uh, essentially uh, I, I think of, of seeing as involving three stages. The first is what I call consideration of uh, plausible potential explanations of the phenomenon. So what other things might have explained um, ulcers in this case? So some people thought it was uh, excess stress. Um, some people thought it was merely excess acidity, um, but not necessarily of a bacterial cause. Um, and so on and so forth. The next stage is what I call comparison, where you basically take the best uh, scientific methods and uh, evidence that's available and you compare the different uh, explanations that you've considered in that first stage. Uh, and you try and figure out how they relate to each other. So it turns out in the ulcer case, well, yes, there is excess acidity, but it's caused by bacteria. And that was actually somewhat surprising because no one thought that bacteria could uh, survive in, in such acidic environments as the stomach. Right? Um, and then the third stage is basically, uh, I call it a couple of different things. I like calling it commitment just so I get the alliteration going on with consideration, comparison, and commitment now. But it's basically undertaking things like beliefs in virtue of the comparisons that you've made, right? So you sort of recognize that um, uh, the bacterial theory ends up giving you, uh, uh, has more plausibility because it can explain a wider variety of, of facts. For instance, that people's ulcers get cured when they take antibiotics, which no other hypothesis seems to do a very good job with. Um, but you can also see that you're going to accept something like the acidity hypothesis too, um, simply because that's uh, deeply uh, enmeshed, right, with the, the bacterial theory. Essentially, it's like an intermediate cause or something like that. So um, those would be the, the, the kinds of things that go on with that. 
And, you know, I add sort of some traditional epistemological writers about uh, uh, banning epistemic luck uh, using what's called a safety condition, but uh, that, that seems pretty inside baseball. So I think I'm going to hold up on that for now, if that's okay. Uh, right. Okay. So you, you call your, you, you gave us a, more of an element, I guess, of your overall picture, which mm-hmm. you call the EKS, right? Yeah. I, I like to call it the X model. model. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay. X. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, could you, could you um, take us through that model and how it is what you call a regimented, regimented descendant of, uh, <laughs> yeah, of yeah. the receive you and, and sure, yeah. sure. So uh, it's basically got three core claims to it. Um, the first is basically that uh, minimal understanding. So, so I guess the, one of the, the animating ideas is that understanding admits of degrees, which uh, perhaps we'll talk about in more depth in a second. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah. But what, then you need, what I think you need is something like uh, 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 a, a lower bound on that. And it's what I call minimal understanding. That's basically having an approximately true belief in a correct explanation. Uh, then the other two elements are, are principles that basically tell you how to improve your understanding. So one is what I call the nexus principle. And that basically says, as you get more explanatory information, correct explanatory information, it improves, right? So when I understand, for instance, um, uh, those peptic ulcers, and I recognize that uh, uh, excess acidity is sort of uh, working in a particular way with, uh, with bacteria, right? I'm getting more explanatory information if I simply know that bacteria causes ulcers, but I don't understand the mechanism by which it works, right? If I only understand that acidity uh, uh, causes ulcers, but I don't understand that it's, that's ultimately caused by bacteria, right? Uh, the third component is basically where the seeing comes in. It basically says that um, there's, there's sort of what I, what you might call looser and firmer grasps of that explanatory information. And you can think of the firmness of that grasp basically as a function of how well it resembles scientific knowledge of an explanation, which is cashed out in terms of seeing of that consideration, comparison, and commitment that I just discussed before. And so those are the, th- the, three, the three bits. So uh, basically there's minimal understanding, which is just sort of a, a baseline of having a correct explanation. And then it improves in terms of the quantity of explanatory information you have. That's the nexus principle and the resemblance of your grasp to scientific knowledge. And that's the scientific knowledge principle. Okay. So, um, yeah, let's talk about degrees of understanding because that, I, that, that kind of plays an important role, you know, further on in some of your responses to other people. Um, and that's an important thing because, well, yeah, tell us, tell us about your, the element of, of understanding coming in degrees. Yeah. So I just think it's, uh, it seems intuitive to me that that understanding does come in degrees, right? So you clearly have a better understanding of uh, philosophy of mind and cognitive science than I do, uh, right? Um, my dad, who's an engineer, obviously has better understanding of uh, of engineering than I do. I just mostly think people understand things better than I do. Um, but we can talk about those things. It's not that I don't know anything about engineering. It's not that I don't know anything about cognitive science. I still have some understanding myself. It's just not as good as yours. And the reason this ends up being important philosophically is because when we think of understanding as categorical or all or nothing, um, then the counterexamples uh, become, uh, I think, sort of create what I would call sort of uh, pseudo problems, or at least don't characterize the problems in the right sorts of ways. Right. So, uh, for instance, a lot of people want to say understanding requires something like special abilities. And I tend to think, well, uh, probably, you know, minimal understanding doesn't have too much of a special ability involved or any special abilities involved. Um, but understanding undoubtedly improves as the, as some of the abilities that people have sort of put their finger on, um, uh, sort of manifest themselves, uh, or, or 
are somehow implicated in, in, uh, in someone's grasp. Uh, and there's a lot more to be said about abilities, but that hopefully gives you a sense. Or another thing that comes up is um, how susceptible understanding is to these sorts of Gettier problems. Can there be lucky understanding in a way that there can't be lucky knowledge? And I kind of think like, well, yes, there can be lucky knowledge, but um, when we start looking at scientific practice, what we find is scientists go through enormous measures to basically make sure that they don't have uh, a lucky explanation that they're accepting. Uh, and it looks like the kinds of things that they, the, the, the kinds of practices they engage in in order to do that are marks of, of what we consider to be better understanding, right? So basically having more experimental controls or having robustness checks, which basically gives, gives you the, the understanding a certain richness that it wouldn't otherwise have. Um, right. So, but explanation itself, I mean, that's kind of, it doesn't, doesn't itself come in degrees or, or knowledge, does it, that those things don't come in degrees, right? Or uh, that, that's right. I mean, th- there are ways of talking that way, but I think you have to be careful. Like, of course, you can know more or fewer things about a particular topic, um, but then it's not that, that that you know know something better or worse quite in the same way. I mean, there's probably some good English cognates where we can make sense of that, but I'm not I'm not trying to to say that actually. Um, similarly, explanation. Um, Explanation is a little bit trickier because, of course, you can ha- you can enumerate more explanatory factors or fewer, right? So most events have multiple causes, and partly what the nexus principle tells you is, uh, look, uh, when you can sort of enumerate more of those factors and recognize them as expl- explanatory contributors, right, that, that increases your understanding. Um, there's also things like better and worse explanations we talk about, but that, that's not the same thing as explaining more or less um, uh, when you're sort of holding the phenomenon to be explained fixed. So I, I would agree with you, you know, broadly, um, this is right. There are things in the neighborhood, uh, which is really what the X model hinges on. Um, uh, so there it's much more about how much explanatory information do you grasp? Once again, we can talk about um, a, a particular epistemic standing bearing greater or, uh, or, or lesser uh, resemblance to scientific knowledge, which is really what, what it hinges on, but it doesn't require knowledge to be a graded concept or explanation to be a graded concept as such. Right, right. Okay. So I, I guess I guess the, the fundamental question I was thinking about was, you know, if understanding comes in degrees and understanding is a species of knowledge, but knowledge doesn't come in degrees, yeah. then yeah, then how exactly, you know, do the degrees kind of come into the picture? Okay. So I guess I would probably um Proceed with caution when it comes to saying that that my view entails that understanding is a species of knowledge. What it, it's probably a better way to put it is understanding is a function of knowledge, uh, and by that I mean exactly what the scientific knowledge principle says. That basically you can have understanding without knowing something, but your understanding improves as uh, it starts to resemble scientific knowledge to a greater degree. Uh, so there's going to be a point where where um, basically to, to reach a certain threshold with understanding, uh, it's going to end up probably being a species of knowledge. Even that actually isn't an immediate consequence in my view, but um, it sort of is suggested by my view. Okay. So it's, it's a, it's a function of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, how much, how much understanding you have is a function of how closely it resembles scientific knowledge is basically what I want to say about the relationship between understanding and knowledge. Okay. Okay. Um, let me, this is, um, this is something that occurred to me, uh, you know, maybe last night or something, but, um, uh, learning, um, you, you, you don't really talk about learning. It's all, it's like, it's always, it's, it's in relation to some endpoint, i.e. knowledge, you know, some true 
fact or theory or something like that. Um, but the process of learning itself would seem to have some role in um, in understanding. Does does learning at all have a you know any sort of role in any of this discussion? Uh, I would think so. You know, I, I have to admit it's not something I thought very much about in writing the book, but uh, note that that process of scientific explanatory evaluation of seeing uh, really has some things that we think of uh, as, uh, at least this is how I often learn stuff, right? I uh, sort of brainstorm about a bunch of possibilities. Uh, I test them out and see which ones sort of work and which ones don't. And then I, I sort of accept the ones that work and reject the ones that don't work. And that's uh, essentially what's going on with with, scientific, with with the consideration, comparison, and and commitment uh, aspects. Uh, so uh, it's certainly, as you, I think you're exactly right to say, it's not something that I've uh, thematized explicitly in the book, but I, I would think that there's uh, some some easy handshakes maybe to be made there uh, with a little bit more uh, 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 thinking uh, uh, on the topic. Okay, okay. Um, so you mentioned this, you know, understanding and ability hypothesis a bit, a little bit, um, and I was just wondering if you could, if you could say a bit more about what what that hypothesis is, because it it seems to be a fairly popular one, at least you know, at least or or a, a main rival of, I guess, of of the received view that you're defending or the version that you're defending. So could you bring that into bit? been into focus? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, very roughly, uh, the thought is there seem to be cases where someone knows an explanation, but they can exhibit um, some kind of what I like to call special ability. Uh, and what that is really depends on the, um, the philosopher who's sort of pitching these ability objections, as I like to call them. Um, but we, you know, we, we all sort of know these examples where someone can kind of like, uh, um, you know, regurgitate, for lack of a better word, uh, the correct answer to a question, and perhaps it's a why question, so it ends up being an explanation. Um, but it seems like they don't really get it on some level. They don't really understand it, or they're not showing a lot of understanding. And I think we have to be careful there uh, on a number of fronts. One is um, there's certain versions of that kind of uh, case where someone's just parroting an answer where they actually don't even really believe what's going on because uh, they, they literally are just sort of mouthing words, but they don't really grasp. The, 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 the concepts that are being used. And I take it that would preclude them from even believing what they're actually squawking, if I can kind of put it that way. Um, right. I mean, right. I mean, if uh, I said, you know, e equals MC squared, I mean, I mean, I might be one of these people. <laughs> um, I, I have faith in you, Carrie. Um, uh, but at any rate, uh, yeah, so, so those kinds of things are not going to be a challenge to even minimal understanding, uh, as I see it, because that requires belief and belief requires something like concept possession. Uh, and I think that those examples get trotted out a lot without making this distinction. And part of the problem, of course, is concept possession is something where we often use words like understanding and grasping and so on and so forth. But it's clear that that there we're not talking about grasping or understanding an empirical phenomenon. We're talking about grasping and understanding a concept. Uh, so I think that that's got to be a necessary part of, of belief, but I don't think it's, uh, which of course is a necessary part of minimal understanding for me. Uh, but I don't think that it's it's sufficient then to to give you understanding because of course we can grasp concepts about all sorts of outlandish things, but it's enough to show you that parroting is not going to be a problem even for my minimal account of understanding. Now, when you get into more specific abilities, uh, things get a little bit more interesting. Um, and I guess uh, uh, one of the things that gets brought up a lot is sort of counterfactual reasoning, right? The thought is when you understand something, you kind of under uh, also can can grasp or see right how um, 
wiggling one thing in the system that you're understanding sort of affects another thing in the system that you're understanding, right? to put it uh, in, uh, in, in loose terms and, and hopefully rather intuitive terms. Um, so uh, that, I think, is actually going to be something that falls out of, once again, having uh, the appropriate kind of concept possession uh, needed to, to even believe an explanatory statement. To explain something is actually to have that, abil- that, that ability to mentally wiggle things, to reason counterfactually about stuff. And that's a, a fairly common view in the, uh, the philosophical literature on explanation. So I think the person who it's most readily associated with is Jim Woodward in his book, Making Things Happen. Um, uh, then you get into slightly, so, so that's all happening at the level of minimal understanding. And it's, it's chapter three of my book where I really just try to give as best I can, um, a defense of, of, of that as, uh, as a defense, as a acceptable lower bound on, on understanding. And those are some of the concerns that I I try to fend off. There's a more interesting question then once we start thinking of degrees of understanding, as I mentioned before, which is what kinds of abilities then improve our understanding from this, this minimal level um, to the higher grade things that we typically think of, say, in, in science. And what I basically do is I look at some of the proposals that have been offered, um, and I think my my three main interlocutors, if I'm remembering correctly, are, <laughs> it's been a while, uh, Duncan Pritchard, Allison Hills, and Stephen Grimm. Uh, and basically what I show is uh, either the abilities that they're putting forward sort of have to line up with uh, the, the abilities that are that figure in, in seeing and in scientific explanatory evaluation, um, or they're actually quite implausible uh, as sort of understanding improving abilities. So uh, I'll just uh, briefly walk you through Stevens because I think it's sort of uh, the simplest and it deals exactly with this bit about counterfactual reasoning. Uh, and just uh, you can kind of see how, how this could be generalized to some of the other uh, views that I mentioned. Um, so Stephen is, is keen on counterfactual reasoning, but note that not all counterfactuals are equal in terms of improving our understanding. Uh, so it's one thing if I'm sort of looking at a chemical reaction and uh, someone says, oh, well, it's because, you know, let's say there's an explosion. It's because someone added lithium to uh, a compound or something like that. Well, there's uh, counterfactuals, which seem like they would tell us something interesting, like, you know, what would happen if I instead added hydrogen rather than lithium uh, to that, that compound? What, you know, would there be an explosion or wouldn't there be? Contrast that with something like, well, um, if, uh, if I added the ambrosia of the gods or something like that, what would happen to the, uh, the chemical compound, right? Uh, if you don't say anything further about which counterfactuals make a difference, then I think you're going to be sort of hard-pressed to say why these things uh, aren't on a par in terms of advancing our understanding. I think I have a pretty plausible story, which is these are the kind of like uh, the, the hydrogen counterfactuals, the kind of thing that might actually end up in a, a scientific experiment, for instance. Uh, the ambrosia one, right, is not. Uh, and Stephen, by contrast, I think doesn't have too much to say about this. So you could see even what I'm doing as a friendly amendment, but it's it's inching him closer, I think, to my view, which is, uh, and Stephen, in my case, about a 15 year old discussion. Uh, but uh, uh, and so so I sort of run that story. Uh, I call it sort of the dilemma of redundancy and excess. Either you're sort of with me, or you end up having these sorts of things where it looks like you're having abilities that don't seem to actually enhance our understanding uh, in, a, in a particularly convincing way. You end up with these weird kinds of counterexamples. So, you know, also people often talk about inferential abilities as another thing, but not all inferences are, are equal here, right? Like uh, I can apply or introduction to any, uh, any uh, belief I already have and make an inference, but presumably that's not going to shed much light on, on my understanding, right? So um, there's a mouth, um, a mouse to, to the right-hand side of 
of me right now. I'm a computer mouse, not a, a rodent mouse, right? Uh, from that, I can for either there's a, a computer mouse or a rodent mouse next to me, but that doesn't seem to be enhancing my understanding of anything, for instance. So that'd be another example of the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Um, plausible story is like that kind of uh, inference isn't going to help me in terms of scientific explanatory evaluation. Okay. And how about like... Um uh, skill type abilities, you know, in, I don't know, you know, manipulating various apparatus or, you know, that, that kind of, I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty much in the realm of, of knowledge that, right. We have, rather than knowledge how, uh, or, or skill knowledge. Um, although skill knowledge is clearly a very much part of, of science. Um, so it's, Yeah. Um, so, are, you know, are, does the ability hypothesis fare better in terms of, uh, you know, even if you're just talking about, you know, scientific explanation and scientific knowledge, um, there is an element of scientific knowledge, which is not knowledge that, but which is knowledge how. And that would be seem to be captured better, you know, in some sort of, you know, broadly speaking, ability, ability. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh so this is where my view has some sort of natural affinities with a lot of the work that's been done in virtue epistemology from people like Ernie Sosa and John Greco, uh, amongst others, uh, where uh, they obviously accord a prominent role for for knowledge for ability and knowledge. I mean, it's basically right true belief because of uh, reliable cognitive ability. And I see a lot of the things going on in seeing as basically cognitive abilities, right? To consider something, uh, consider some, uh, to consider plausible potential explanations, for instance. You have to do things like, uh, you know, be well versed in uh, in, a, in a literature and understand. Well, understand is the wrong word to use there, but comprehend. Let's just say um, what's going on with different models that are being proposed for a, a given phenomenon. Uh, you also often have to be creative and come up with your own potential explanations of what's going on. Uh, so this strikes me as cognitive abilities. When you get to comparison, you're basically talking about um, being able to follow what's going on in an experiment, or even perhaps design an experiment. And I take it things like manipulating. Uh, devices and and things like that figure prominently there. Um, and similarly, when you undertake a commitment on the basis of those comparisons, that's an inferential ability. Uh, and so I think all of these things fit fit nicely with what I'm doing. I don't explicitly tie this to the know-how, know-that literature, um, but I take it, I, I, I'm, I'm allowed to give a, a pretty central role to abilities simply by piggybacking off of uh, the, the virtue reliabilist or virtue epistemologist uh, uh, sort of picture. Uh, and that's something I discuss uh, uh, in a, a nice exchange with Mark Newman uh, in the European Journal of Philosophy of Science uh, in more detail. Okay. Um, and then one other, uh, you know, you've, you've used the term grasp, uh, you know, and that's a very common term to be used here. But I, I've always taken that as, you know, somehow metaphorical. Um, uh, I'm just wondering, could you, you know, what, can you unpack that metaphor for you? Yeah. So for me, really, the scientific knowledge principle uh, exhausts what I mean by grasping. It's basically any epistemic standing, uh, minimally, it looks like it's going to have to involve true belief on my view, um, that bears some resemblance to scientific knowledge of an explanation. And so it's really not a single thing. It's uh, any number of epistemic statuses that might uh, sort of figure. And what counts as sort of having a firm enough grasp is going to largely be context dependent. So how much, how closely does this um, this epistemic status have to resemble scientific knowledge. It might be in the context of science, for instance, that it's got to just be scientific knowledge of an explanation. Uh, it might be in uh, in more uh, everyday contexts, it can fall short of that. 
but it's still got to bear some resemblance. Like maybe it's just got to be knowledge, but it doesn't have to be scientific knowledge. Maybe it's got to exhibit some features of scientific knowledge, but not all of them. Uh, and so um, it might be lucky, it might not be lucky, uh, those sorts of things. Um, so uh, that's how I tend to think about it. I, I actually don't think grasping is something that admits of a, uh, like if you're looking for a distinctive mental state that counts as grasping, I, I think I, I would probably punt on that myself. Uh, as I said, I think it's it's any number of, of epistemic standings towards a, a correct explanation um, that bear varying degrees of resemblance to scientific knowledge. Okay. Um, so um, correct explanation. I mean, one of the, you know, interesting topics here is um, the relationship between like understanding an explanation um, and the truth of that explanation. And, you know, sort of historically and, and particularly in the realm of science, of course, we know, you know, presumably many people for hundreds of years, you know, understood Newton's laws. Um, now, obviously, there there's always a fudge factor of approximately true. But if you set that aside, um, you know, there's the I think you mentioned and I mentioned the phlogiston theory, which was you know just false, right? And um, but people presumably, uh, you know, Priestley in particular, um, understood it. I mean, let, that's intuitively they they would understand it. So it seems it seems like there's a disconnection that you can understand something that is false. But of course, if understanding is a function of knowledge and knowledge can only be of something true, then there seems to be a problem, right? Yes. So uh, remember I said understanding is said in many ways a little way, ways back. And what I would say is uh, there's a difference between understanding a theory versus understanding phenomena. So I think I, I, I have no doubt that, that Priestley understood phlogiston theory uh, quite well. Um, I'm much more skeptical that he understood combustion uh, very well uh, because he used the phlogiston theory. Uh, now, um, there are people, uh, I think, Hank hmm. Derek. <laughs> right? Okay, go ahead. But I, yeah. I find that a little bit like, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he's going to say that basically there's a, uh, a release of phlogiston <laughs> uh, happening with combustion. And that seems like that's the wrong answer when you ask why an object uh, combusted, right? Um, uh, so that strikes me as a mark of misunderstanding. Now, there are people who basically are, are going to push back against that. And I think it's an interesting question for them uh, exactly where they want to fall on that spectrum. So a lot of them want to still say that um, Priestley explained combustion when he did that. And if you do that, then uh, what I point out is I try to have as ontologically neutral an account of explanation as I can. So if you really want to go that route and say that falsehoods can explain, that actually is not going to contradict my view because we're both going to agree uh, if we bracket this, the, the, well, maybe uh, if that semantic view of, of expl explanatory statements is right, then we're both going to agree that this is a true explanation, right? And because I'm trying to punt on, on these larger issues, I just kind of say, fine, that seems like that's a very different kind of debate about understanding or not understanding. That's ultimately a debate about explanation. Um, and, and so that's one way to go with it. Um, having said that, I find that to be a pretty implausible <laughs> uh, semantics for explanation. Uh, so I just think it, it, it sounds weird to me to say A explains B, but not A. Uh, you know, so for instance, um, uh, bacterial infection explains the patient's symptoms, but the patient doesn't have a bacterial infection strikes me as a really strange thing to say. Um, uh, but if you, if you want to go that route, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to, to concede that because it seems to me that it's not a, a debate about understanding at that point. It's really a debate about the semantics of explanatory statements. Uh, 
I then point out that there's lots of other ways of giving priestly credit, which don't involve him understanding why combustion occurred in a particular case, right? So there's lots of really nice experimental successes, which are documented uh, really beautifully in uh, Hasek Chang's book as Water H2O, um, where it looks like phlogiston theorists did all sorts of really incredible uh, experimental things. And I want to say at that point, like they probably have something like a, a know-how or a practical understanding. If you want to use the word understanding, I wouldn't be upset, right? They understood how to isolate oxygen from hydrogen, though they wouldn't describe it that way. Uh, uh, but I don't think they understand um, uh, why they're doing the things that they're doing, because those all seem to be false descriptions. Um, mm. And I think like that's like, a, please yeah. Well, um, I mean, it just seems that it, it sets up a very high bar for understanding where, you know, I mean, if you, not that I'm endorsing it, but if you use the pessimistic meta-induction and you say, well, you know, our current theories of science, even the, you know, the standard model and quantum mechanics and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, probably are false given the history of science. But in any case, I mean, whether you buy that, you know, extreme sort of pessimistic meta-induction, or you just say, you know, so many of our theories today that we think are, you know, very good or, or true or whatever, you know, in another 100 years or 50 years or something, you know, they could be turn out, turn out to be false. There's, it's always open to correction and, and so forth. Um, you know, then it looks like, well, uh, it, it looks like you have to say, well, we, you know, even our maybe our very best scientists um, uh, don't understand. Yeah, uh, a, a fair worry. Uh, I guess what I would say is there's there's ample resources. This is also something I tried to really steer clear of in the book. There's ample resources from scientific realists to respond to those sorts of uh, concerns. And I should also say uh, I sort of came kicking and screaming to scientific realism. It was this book that sort of um, brought me closer to it. Uh, but uh, there's lots of resources there for basically saying, well. Uh, you, you said put approximate truth to the side, but I think there's a lot to be said on behalf of that, right? So we just think of some of the paradigmatic cases in the pessimistic induction, for instance, um, that Fresnel came up uh, with um, some equations that are still used today to explain diffraction uh, on the basis of the ether theory. And I think it's it's a pretty plausible thing to say, well, um, he understood, you know, this word degrees of understanding, I think are also really important, right? He understood insofar as he got the equations right, and they seem to be describing light as wave-like, um, he probably uh, didn't understand insofar as he thought that that was uh, because of the ether. And so there's a sense in which you can uh, approximate true, approximately true is uh, admittedly a bit of a weasel word, but we can at least say, well, it's in virtue of the parts he got right that he understood. And it's in virtue of the parts that he got wrong that he maybe had some misunderstanding. Um, but, but it allows us to at least give uh, even ether theorists a bit of credit if you, if you want to buy that kind of view. This isn't something I worked out in immense detail in, cha- uh, in the chapter on truth and understanding, but it, it would fall out pretty naturally from the stuff I do say. Yeah, well, it seems like it, it seems like you know, in order to give a little bit of credit to the ether theorists or the phlogiston theorists, uh, we have to deny credit to like Richard Feynman and you know Albert Einstein and and people who are our paradigms of people who really know and understand and explain things. Oh, I would think right? we're giving credit to everyone now. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, you know, on, on yes, uh, yes, and no, and the no part is that um, you know, again, like I said, the given the fact that you know we don't, you know, how much matters in the universe, you know, dark matter, you know, things that you know Einstein didn't know about or speculated, um, um, all these things 
would seem to detract from uh, the truth and um, and anything that detracts from the truth uh, will undermine understanding as a, on your view. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. It's only the things that are actually part of the explanation that would, would undermine it. And I think here we also have to be careful and sort of piecemeal about the, the kinds of things that, that you know, take your, your five favorite scientists, Einstein, Feynman, et cetera, um, the kinds of things they did understand and the kinds of things that perhaps they didn't understand. And uh, I think we can always see that they end up advancing our understanding uh, in virtually all of these cases, but, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't hit a grand slam. They hit like a triple and, and drive in three runs, right? Like, I'm not going to be upset about that. Are you? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, we do advance. But I, I guess maybe this is another place where your degrees of understanding kind of plays a role. That, that'd be how I think of it, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so you, you also, there's also a distinction um, uh, about that you call objectual, that is called objectual understanding, um, which is ob- understanding of some sort of subject, right? I guess, you know, understanding of maybe chemistry or something. Um, um, could you could you explain what that um what that is better than I just did, and uh, why you think that there, there there's no interesting way in which objectual understanding is any different from from your focus on explanatory understanding? Yeah, uh, sure. So, objectual understanding is something that's been kicking around, uh, particularly in the epistemological literature, um, for, for quite some time. And I would sort of point to uh, Kay Elgin's excellent work and John Bonvig's excellent work on this as as the two places which where where this sort of became a thing. I think John is the one who baptized the term objectual understanding, if I remember correctly. Um, and basically, they're they're both, I think, coming at this. Uh, as people who were fans of, of coherentism as a, as a doctrine of justification, um, recognizing that perhaps it's not always the best way to make sense of, uh, of knowledge, they said, oh, but can, coherentism actually works really well for characterizing understanding. And the, you know, the, the intuition behind it, I think, is really clear. People who understand stuff grasp connections, right? And they seem to be exactly the same kinds of connections that coherentists have been talking about, right? Explanatory connections, probabilistic connections, logical connections, et cetera. And they kind of see how everything hangs together. That seems to be a hallmark of understanding. And so they often then want to sort of push for a larger unit of understanding than simply understanding individual phenomena. Uh, I should also say there's another movement uh, that's a little bit more recent even than my book um, uh, where people want to think of objectual understanding uh, as objectual understanding of a particular phenomenon. They, and they typically want to contrast this with explanatory understanding. At any rate, what I sort of argue, I, I think you can see my view is broadly reductionist about objectual understanding. I, I have this, this hunch that objectual understanding is sort of loose talk. And when we kind of press on it, what we find is that it's basically uh, sort of uh, either having a bunch of explanatory understanding, right? So you uh, you understand astronomy, that means that you can explain a lots, of, a lots of astronomical phenomena. But it also turns out that sometimes these fans of objectual understanding want to point to certain kinds of uh, epistemic statuses or cognitive achievements, which fall short of explanatory understanding. And that uh, led to what I, I like to call uh, proto-understanding, which is basically being on the right track uh, to understanding why something is the case without actually quite being there yet. Uh, and so I tend to think of objectual understanding as typically large masses of, um, different, uh, of, of different kinds of explanatory understanding and uh, as well as proto-understanding, uh, being on the right track to understanding. Okay. 
Okay. Um, I don't know if I if I answered your question. I basically gave yeah. you on it. <laughs> Sorry about right. that. Right. No, that's 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 fine. That's uh, fine. Um, so uh, you you mentioned luck before, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is a this is kind of a particular little you know area within in epistemology about you know can you know something you know just by luck and it kind of it it uh you maybe you could say you know how the discussion of understanding intersects with that particular um issue yeah uh if you don't mind i'm going to also smuggle in uh the chapter after the luck chapter to, to sort of motivate this which is i think one of the big drivers of uh of the the newfound attention to understanding in the last 20 years or so has been um, resuscitation of a very old problem that you find in the Mino, actually, which is why is knowledge more valuable than true belief? Right. Well, that was actually, I was, that was like my next question, but perfectly fine. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and when you sort of fast forward to post-Gettier epistemology, this question actually becomes even more puzzling because we can kind of see why justification might be valuable, but like why, you know, uh, uh, being immune to, to Gettier cases is valuable is actually a really hard thing to put your finger on. And so I think partly what's driven uh, the concern, the, the the interest in understanding is the thought that, all right, well, maybe this is something that because it's a little bit more uh, driven by internalist concerns and things like that, actually just doesn't have an anti-Gettier condition built onto it. And, and that's the motivation for at least, uh, I think, trying to find, uh, tr- trying to focus on understanding. Now, what exactly is it? It's, you know... Uh, uh, some of the standard cases, I think this is probably the most famous case, which comes from John Kwanbig again, is that, uh, you know, you go to a, a library, you pick up a book, um, it, and it happens to be uh, the, the one reliable book on Comanche history, and you gain a whole bunch of understanding about Comanche history. This looks lucky because if had you picked up any other book on Comanche history in the library, uh, it would have, uh, you would have ended up with false beliefs. And that's supposed to be a kind of case of Gettier. Uh, uh, kind of like a Gettier case, right? Um, and the thought is, it looks like you still understand. Uh, so there's some difference then between understanding and, uh, and knowledge in those particular cases. Uh, I tend to think that these examples trade on interesting ambiguities. I don't know if you want me to get th- this far into uh, the, the weeds with this, but uh, essentially what you see is a lot of this is about actually sort of um, happening upon evidence uh, in a lucky way rather than hitting upon a true belief in a lucky way. It's sort of mediated by the luck of the evidence. And there's much weaker intuitions that that counts as a case of knowledge undermining luck. Uh, so it doesn't seem to me that these are very compelling cases. Um, that's sort of the internal critique of, of a lot of these setups. So um, let me just give you a, a homely example of this, right? So uh, I can't find my keys in the morning. In fact, I think what I couldn't find as I was driving over is I couldn't find my headphones uh, for talking over things, which ended up being ironic given how much trouble we had with the headphones, but a story for another day. Um, uh, so I couldn't find I couldn't find my my headphones. Uh, I I just happened to sort of uh, pull up a, a cushion. Right, it was the first place I looked. I pulled up a cushion on my couch. I found my headphones there. Right. Uh, right. I don't think anyone's going to doubt that I know that the headphones are sitting right in front of me on the couch right there. But it was kind of a lucky thing that the first place I looked was uh, under the couch. And I think the the kinds of uh, examples what are often called Comanche cases because of uh, John's problem because because John's example is so prominent uh, have the same kind of flavor, right? I hit upon a particular book, uh, and that's lucky, but it doesn't undermine my knowledge in the same kind of way because it's just sort of being lucky in the evidence I encountered rather than being lucky in the way that we see with some of the more classic Gettier cases. Um, uh, so that's sort of the internal critique. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I think the more interesting critique is really what happens in the second half of chapter seven of my book, 
where what I basically say is, uh, and I had mentioned this before, scientists go through extraordinary measures to make sure that their beliefs are not lucky, right? Uh, a well-designed uh, controlled experiment is basically uh, all about not make not ending up with a, a fluky correlation. It's about making sure that you don't have a lucky hypothesis that's confirmed. Uh, and I think that this is actually um, much much closer to the reason why we should, and, and note that when you're doing this, you're engaged in, in really pretty like uh, admirable cognitive activities, right? You're showing due diligence, right? If you want to sort of think about this in terms of your sort of cognitive character, right? You're you're covering all of your bases uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, at the at the broadest level, and then you know there's whatever the degree of difficulty, which has more to do with scientific virtuosity or whatever you want to call it. But it's really the due diligence that I want to hammer home, uh, which looks like it, it fits very well with with any number of sort of virtue epistemological kinds of accounts. And so I think what this shows you is that understanding actually has a very distinctive relationship uh, uh, with with banning luck, which is that really like it's got to be the overcoming of luck through um, through through your own uh, you know uh, elbow grease, as it were. Um, that really ends up being a mark of understanding, right? They, and I think there's there's lots more to be said about that, but hopefully that gives you the, the general gist of, of how I want to tackle those sorts of issues. Okay, so yeah, so to to get to the the Mino, you know, issue or or Plato with his with his um, metaphor of the the statue that you know you, you nail it down, right? It's um, um, is that is, is that uh, accounted for by your reference now to this idea of you know doing due diligence in some way. Uh, to, to some extent, the way I, I, I really just sort of take off from the epist- the virtue epistemological literature here. So um, I sort of identify four things uh, that I think of as being epistemically valuable about understanding, um, or sorry, th- three things I should say. Um, the first is basically just having true beliefs about explanations. Um, and I don't say very much about what's distinctive about uh, the epistemic value of, of, I say nothing really, I just assume that it's it's distinctively valuable uh, explanation, but that's an interesting topic that I'm broaching now. Um, the second is basically what we might think of as instrumental epistemic value. Uh, when you have, uh, when you've engaged in scientific explanatory evaluation, you basically have really reliable means uh, for arriving at things like true beliefs and so on and so forth and other kinds of epistemic goods. Uh, and then uh, the third, which I think is sort of the capstone, and it's what I directly grabbed from uh, the virtue epistemologist, is the idea that you've also uh, engaged in a cognitive achievement. And we generally think of achievements as um, things that are valuable in their own right, uh, what's called, you know, they're, they're finally valuable, they're an end unto themselves. Uh, and what I point out is, uh, in, in that last chapter, is basically um, that doesn't really distinguish knowledge in a lot of cases from, uh, I'm sorry, doesn't distinguish understanding uh, uh from a lot of other kinds of, uh, how would I put this? Let me let me try that again. Um, what it does is it basically, uh, there's a set of problems that some epistemologists have sort of seen as um, refinements of the Mino problem, right? Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think that those problems are actually problems worth solving. I think once you've done that, you've done everything you need to do. You said, here's what's valuable about understanding. Uh, we can make sense of why anything that falls short of any particular kind of understanding or degree of understanding, uh, I should say, uh, uh, is is less valuable, and the thought that we have to do more than that—the thing that people are often pi- pining for—is we somehow have to show that understanding is more valuable in kind than anything that falls short of understanding. And I just don't think that there's uh, a defensible answer to that. And I actually don't think the motivation for even asking the question is particularly well uh, motivated. Yeah, I, I just I think it's uh, it's poorly stated. Uh, so I think there's lots of arguments for for just saying like that's all we need to do with respect to epistemic value. Now to get back to the Mino thing, I think insofar that is that there's a vestige of that. It's that notion that 
there are aspects of understanding which are instrumentally epistemically valuable, that basically they give you a reliable means of, of pinning down <laughs> uh, your beliefs, as it were, uh, and perhaps other kinds of epistemic achievements as well, or cognitive achievements as well. Okay, okay. Um, so you've mentioned John Cranvig uh, a, a couple times, and um, I think it's him who, who talked, you know, wrote a bit about uh, scientific knowledge in the collaboration sense, right? Um, more, in the, more in the context of, you know, trust and that sort of a thing, but um, uh, not, to, not to go to trust, but um, uh, is underst- is, can you have collective understanding? Um, and, uh, you know, I just want to sort of wonder, you know, in science, uh, you know, since you are focusing on scientific explanation, all of our examples so far, and I think most of them in your book are all individualistic in that it's an individual who understands or not. Um, yeah. Um, I, a lot of this, yeah, today science is like these, you know, massive collaborations mm-hmm. and things like that. And I was just, you know, what's, what about the sort of social dimension there? That's, that's a great question. It's something I certainly don't explore in my book. Uh, so I'm sort of torn between two things. I certainly want to preserve talk of saying that, that, that scientists as a group can understand things. Um, and uh, I don't know that my story would be one where there's a really, really robust uh, s- sort of room for, say, like group subjects or something like that, that that would probably be the, the easiest way to do that. I think I'd probably want to tell a story where we kind of understand that by seeing um, sort of the piecemeal contribution. Like, like, here's sort of how I think this would work out is there's going to be scientists who understand particular aspects of a phenomenon and then other scientists in the team who understand different aspects of the phenomenon. Uh, and uh, you kind of, there's an interesting story about how you, you piece together all of their, their, um, their, their little bits and pieces into a, a cohesive whole. Um, I don't have that story. I, I think that's actually probably uh, a, good, a good story for, for someone to tell. I don't know if I'm the one to tell it, but uh, I, I just wouldn't want to have to posit um, anything too robust on the social ontology side, but that's really motivated by things that uh, have very little to do with understanding and a lot more to do with my work in philosophy of social science, I guess is what I would say. Uh, okay. Yeah. Good. Um, okay. So let me, we're, we're getting close to uh, running out of time. So you mentioned some of the work that you are, you know, things that you are working on now. I was just wondering um, what are, where have you gone sort of since this book? What are you, what are your current projects? And, oh, uh, and, yeah. yeah that's, that's a great question. I, I, uh, I sort of feel that uh, I don't have a, a tidy answer to that, but I think they sort of fall into three categories. So one which I mentioned already is um, philosophy of social science, and that's actually primarily about um, putting forward a more empirically informed and naturalistic social ontology uh, than the ones that are currently in vogue right now. Uh, <clears throat> and that's very much in the early stages. I think uh, uh, that's going to probably be a later project. Uh, the second project, uh, which really I think of as a natural sequel to the understanding project, uh, is developing, uh, you know, what I was basically trying to do is, uh, was be as non-committal about explanation as I could be in the understanding book. But uh, it's, it's been a, an interest of mine basically since I've been in graduate school thinking about theories of explanation. And so uh, I'm currently working on that. And the, <laughs> the problem with that is I, I end up being sort of... Uh, uh, a very spirited explanatory pluralist. So I just end up saying, oh, it's, it's just different wherever you go, but uh, I'm trying to say something more interesting than that. Uh, and so some of that's starting to uh, tie into some of the issues we talked about with the semantics of explanation, where I'm trying to push basically a kind of inferential rule semantics for explanatory discourse, which has 
some interesting upshots uh, for various topics in philosophy of science. And then the third one, which is sort of like my big general philosophy of science kind of project, is really looking at the role of uh, questions in science. Uh, and that ends up having interesting ramifications for a wide range of, of topics, uh, including scientific representation, scientific realism, and, and values in science. Uh, and that's actually the, the, the one that I think I'm, I'm most excited about right now, but it also scares me the most because it's just so big. <laughs> uh, it's big. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, right. Um, okay, well, uh, that all sounds really interesting. And um, I do look forward to seeing some of that work. Um, uh, yeah, these are all very vibrant areas. So, um, you know, I wish you luck in, in all your all your pursuits. Oh, well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me uh, on the show. Okay. Uh, thanks again. And uh, good luck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.